A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. Warning! X-Ray Vision is a podcast that contains spoilers for Book of Boba Fett, Episode 3, Streets of Moss Espa. It also contains a discussion of Station Eleven on HBO Max, which does not have spoilers. We talk about some plot points and some things, but Jason and H, the Dune Pod Boys, and myself talk about the show in a way that is uh, that doesn't spoil anything. But hopefully, if you're not watching it, will get you excited to perhaps watch it. So be warned. Jason Concepcion, and welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, pop culture, and more. In today's episode, on the previously on, we will discuss uh, some news stories, that uh, one that we have talked about before, unionizing at Image Comics, and another that is new to us, but we uh, I know that Rosie and I want to discuss, which is the proposed raid remake over at Netflix for the Hive Mind section. We will be diving into Station Eleven on HBO Max with Jason and H from the Dune Pod. On Nerd Out, we get a pitch for Superman and Lois. And in the end game, we will pick our favorite apocalypses. If you're not caught up with anything we're covering or just want to hop around the episode, check out the timestamps in our show notes. Joining me today to talk about uh, some of the news and to talk about Book of Boba Fett is comics expert, writer extraordinaire, podcast host extraordinaire, one of the most extraordinary people around currently, Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? Oh, it's so nice to be here with you. Another Woo! one of the most extraordinary people. <laughs> yeah, no, um, Okay, let's, uh, let's, do it. let's, let's get to previously on. <laughs> oh, that's so wonderful. Let's go to, let's get to previously on and talk about a story that we, uh, that we touched on a few episodes ago, the image Comics unionization drive after a National Labor Relations Board vote, Image Comics workers certified their union, Comic Book Workers United, which is, this is historic, folks, this is industry first. This is huge and, and with implications for the broader industry, not just at Image, um, but it is in a, in a weird way. Very interesting that it happened at Image, considering Image's history yes. within uh, the industry. Rosie, tell us more. Okay, so Image, it's Image Comics' 30th anniversary this year, actually. So um, Image Comics was a team of some of the most famous big two creators who came together and they created a creator-owned publisher. Jim Lee, yes. Rob Liefeld, Mark Silvestri, Jim Valentino, Wills Potashio, yes. Icon, um, you know, Eric Larson. So these these are the guys, they come in, they create this thing. It shakes up the industry. And the idea is to create something where you own your own characters, which we know That's does right. not happen at Marvel and DC. So That's right. 30 years later, 29, because this started last year, it was very shocking for a lot of people when Image would not voluntarily recognize the union. Yes. 
Because to a lot of people, Image Comics seems like the kind of place where as a creator-owned, focused comics publisher, you would want people to who work there to be paid fairly and to... Share in the success success. of the success generated by something that someone created. Like, allow the creators to take part in the success of their idea. And Image did not recognize the union voluntarily. And that sort of forced the union to go to this vote. And the vote has given them the supermajority and Image Comics will be unionized. So now we go to the negotiation stage. And it is very interesting because this is essentially going to set a precedent that has never been before in the comics industry. Mm -hmm. Many years ago, Neil Adams, a bunch of other creators did try and start a comic book union with the most unbelievable page rates. And it didn't, it didn't really get traction. It didn't happen, but this is real. The images unionized. I'm very interested to see how the negotiations go. And something I think like something that was coming out of the conversation was people were saying, Oh, but this isn't the creators who are unionizing. These are the people who work in the office. But the thing is, the way comics are made is every single part of it, editorial, production, those are the reasons the comic book gets made. They are creating the comics. And part of creating this union is to hopefully create a more, this is not just, this is the way to do it that can get it recognized, which is the internal people who work in the comic industry. But this should ideally become something where we will get like set page lettering rates and uh coloring lettering rates things that are often underpaid this is somewhere where hopefully there would be a set page rate for artists and writers and it could really become something really amazing and i think it's it's very exciting and i think image even if the older people who founded image none of them have come out in support of the union um before this image has made an official statement now but I think it's the right place for it. And I'm really interested to see what happens next. Same. You mentioned uh, the Neil Adams drive, which was kind of like an interesting, it was a hijacking of an idea that Stanley had to create like a group that would just be a marketing arm for comics. But then Neil Adams is like, why don't we create this, Mm -hmm. turn this into a union? That drive kind of floundered because of disagreements on who would be included and who yes. would not? Who is a creator? Is an inker a creator? Is a letterer a creator? Is a colorist? Hopefully those kind of divisions are, are, are can be overcome uh, this time, but uh, same as you. Very interested to see what happens next. Uh, next up, one of my favorite movies series, <laughs> The Raid, uh, directed by Gareth Evans, Indonesian action film directed by a Welsh director. Uh, really interesting contrast and for my money, two movies, The Raid and, uh, and The Raid 2, that redefined action in action movies in, uh, yep. in how brutal they could be and how exciting they could be and the way the camera could move in the amount of people that could be fighting at one time in the amount of controlled chaos that could be depicted on the screen. And uh, so the news is that this movie is now going to be uh, remade for Netflix Produced by Michael Bay and Patrick Hughes, Gareth Evans will be producing, which is weird. He should be directing. Yes, like if you why really not just let this, him direct it? 
he should be dead. So this is where I, I, I go. I go beef. I go this beef. is where. Yeah. So we'll get into that. But first deadline says the remake is, quote, to be set in Philadelphia's drug infested badlands where an elite undercover DA task force climbs a ladder of cartel informants to catch an elusive kingpin. It will be uh, directed by Patrick Hughes, who previously directed The Expendables 3, Hitman's Bodyguard, Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Michael Bay, everyone knows. Let me just say this. No one watched the raid or the raid two for the story. So remaking the story, retconning it, setting it in Philly, whatever, yada, yada, yada. It's all very interesting, but it's about the action as a storytelling device. And in that sense, I am very interested to see what this ends up being. And my sense is it will end up being a very watered down version of the, of the original movies from a kind of like Western American centric perspective. Yeah. I, I'm that's what I think it will probably be. What are, what are your So thoughts? I love the original movie so much. I mean, the ra- the the thing that I think is most important about the raid and why this seems like an odd choice. The raid was made by Gareth Evans to highlight Eco Uwe's talent at Silat, which is Silat yeah. is this Indonesian martial arts. And, yes. and that was really the focus of the movie was to showcase this kind of martial arts we don't usually get to see. And this cool idea of this trapped room, you're climbing up almost like a boss level, you yes. want to get up. That's a really cool setup to showcase the action, right? And and To and Gareth, showcase the action, period. And, the action is the star. And also, I mean, I just already feel like, the, to me, like the Philadelphia's drug-infested Badlands, it sounds like yeah, it's going to be racist. Like, I just don't, I, I, there's, there's I, I do, but it bumps me, it bumps me as well. That one bumps me a <laughs> but, little bit. you know what? I, I do like, Gareth Evans producing... And I hope, I hope, you know, this could be a surprise. So the thing that I will bring up, which I think is something that will probably come up a lot with this, is the Train to Busan remake. But Mm -hmm. the thing about the Train to Busan remake is is James Wan is producing it and he hired Timo Tahanto, who is the most unbelievable action director from Indonesia, who who made The Night Comes For Us, which stars Eco. So that's the kind of remake where I'm like, I'm interested to see where that goes. And I'm hoping that this is a remake that adds a layer. But the description, I don't really want to see a DEA task force doing anything. I don't need that. I don't need it. But who are they, and who are they going to cost? I, this would be my prediction. And this is not a slight against Scott Adkins because I actually have a lot of love for a lot of his movies. But this sounds like a Michael Bay, Scott Adkins movie where you're just going to have a guy do it. Keep, he's beating up some drug deal. I don't know. The, the ra- Watch The Raid. It's so magical. Watch The Raid. And if this, if this can get half of of that electricity and and that kind of absolute raw like action magic it will be great but we, i think we'll have to wait and see i think we'll have to wait it's a lot of red flags for me mostly because listen the raid the raid was probably filmed for 120th of whatever the budget for mm-hmm. this netflix uh yep. project is going to end up being once you put in base fees and everything else and it is like a nuclear bomb in a bottle. It mm-hmm. is so powerful as like some of the best action movies from uh, from from Asia are because they are violent in a kind of majestically balletic way mm-hmm. that you watch it and you understand that because of insurance, because of the concerns for the safety of the of the performance, <laughs> there are just certain things that probably can't be done mm-hmm. that happen in Indonesia, in Hong Kong, and that can't can't 
probably yeah. happen uh, through the Hollywood system. That being said, I'm interested to see where this goes. I have my doubts. Just watch The Raid also if you're a fan of action movies. If you want to see an action movie that, again, really redefined for me what like martial arts action could be in the 21st century. Yeah. Watch oh. The Raid and The Raid 2. Also, I just have to say, because this is connected and it will make it easier for you to find, The Raid was never released in America as The Raid because the rights right, were bought right. to remake it. So I think yeah. it's called The Raid Retribution or it's it's yeah, got uh, a, it will have a secondary... The Raid Redemption. Redemption, Redemption. The Raid, yeah. Re- yeah, yeah. I always remember that. And apparently the reason it was never just released as The Raid was because they wanted to make a remake. And I'm like, 10 years later, maybe that's going to come into play. But yeah, Raid Redemption, 10 out of 10, incredible movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next up, Book of Boba Okay, uh, let us talk about episode three, uh, Book of Boba Fett, The Streets of Mos Espa, written by John Favreau, directed by Robert Rodriguez. And boy, does this feel like a Robert Rodriguez project. We will discuss it using X-Ray Vision's iconic speed recap. Are you ready, Rosie? Here we go. I'm ready. We start at at, uh, Don Tatooine, Jabba's Palace. We see the outside of Jabba's Palace and we see... Little Easter egg for the folks out here. You see this little spider droid walking around. It's got this little like uh, orb, glass orb of gooey stuff inside of it. That is a monk of the Bomar Order. The monks of the Bomar Order believe that um, that you could attain enlightenment by shunning all physical experience, physical sensation. So they just put their brains like in this little goo and then have it carried around by droids. Now, Jabba's palace used to be their temple. But then Jabba showed up and was like, get out. I'm taking over. And so they still are on the grounds, just kind of like skittering around the outside because they have no place else to go. It'd be nice if Boba, if he finds out about this, maybe lets them back in. They can you mm-hmm. know, uh, take over one room of the palace. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Boba's hanging out. 888, uh, voiced by the wonderful Matt Berry, whose voice is so majestic that I could listen to it at all times. He briefs Boba on uh, Jabba's former protection business. And 88 is wary of even saying Jabba's name as if the late gangster were like Voldemort or something. And he tells Boba that after Jabba died, Bib Fortuna took over and managed the power vacuum amongst the syndicates with an eye towards, you know, stability and kind of like avoiding outright warfare. Mos Espa was sliced up like a cake. The Trandoshans got a piece, the Aqualish got a piece, the Clatoonians got a piece, and Bib acted as this kind of sheriff keeper of an uneasy piece. All the while, Mayor Mokshays got a taste of all the illicit activities. 88 goes on to tell Boba that everyone is kind of laying low for now, waiting to see if Boba is going to be like a real hard-ass gangster or softy or whatever the case may be. As for the assassins who came to uh, kill Boba early in the season, it can't be the mayor, Fennec Shan says, but it could be the Hut twins and Fennec will look into it. Boba is having trouble figuring out the gangster life, the kind of like sensitive, <laughs> the more sensitive post-Sarlacc pit Boba Fett is just kind of, he's trying to trying to adjust. That's what's happening right now. Um, and this is a journey that I very much enjoy. Lorth Appeal then shows up. Lorth Appeal played by the great comic actor Stephen Root, who you probably recognize from Office Space and many other things. He is a small business owner 
basically a moisture dealer who charges exorbitant rates. Uh, he has a business down in the workers district. He shows up without an appointment. It should be added. AD8 is like, this guy is here. He doesn't have an appointment. Fennec Shand is like, well, we don't, you can't just let people in without an appointment. And Boba's like, it's fine. We're doing a business differently. Peel starts off by saying, Boba, Lord Boba, uh, no disrespect, but nobody respects you, including myself. Uh, the streets of the workers' <laughs> district are in an uproar. There are rascal kids that have joined together in gangs and they are rampant down there. They are stealing my water and they are half man, half machine. And I'll tell you what, Boba Fett, if you take care of them, I'll double my tribute and maybe the streets will then respect you. So uh, Boba heads down there. He takes Shand. He takes the Gamorreans down to the district to check things out. And there he finds a bunch of Tatooine Zoomers hanging around a cache of stolen water. He's like, hi, I'm Boba Fett. I'm the daimyo here. Their leader, Dash, played by Sophie Thatcher of Yellow Jackets fame. Wonderful to see her Yay. in another project that is that is happening at the time. I think she's fantastic <laughs> and very talented. Watch Yellow Jackets on Showtime. If you haven't watched it yet, you can catch up right now on season one. It's really good. I like it. Do you like Yellow Jackets, Rosie? Oh my God, I love it. It's like the best show on TV right now. I'm just, I'm obsessed with it. And I was so happy to see her here with a cool droid arm. I was just like, yes. Always with great hair, Sophie Thatch. Every time. Every time. She has got a personal shag hairstylist with a fresh razor every, every time. Every time. Like, unbelievable. So Dash basically tells Boba, hey, listen, while you're up there in your ivory back to tank, the youth down here on the streets don't have jobs. We are paying crazy rates for water and uh, we have nothing better to do except steal water from little pieces of shit like Lord of the Peel. And Boba is like, okay, great. You need a job. You work for me now. Now, the water thing is very interesting because, of course, Boba, I think, in his kind of journey with the Tuscans, which we have seen in flashback all throughout, mm -hmm. the, all throughout the series, I think really kind of got a appreciation for how important water is. He, of course, like one of the tasks he was given uh, was to dig up water by the Tuscan child. Um, he understands like how important it is to life out here. And someone who's just going to like be exploiting people and raising the price of water willy nilly is probably a piece of shit. So Boba says, OK, kids, yeah. you work for me. I will give you a job. Lorth Appeal, how much do they owe you? I will give you a third of what they owe you because you've been uh, bumping up your rates crazy and you will be happy with it. If you're not happy with it, there's going to be issues and walk away now. Be happy that that I gave you this and also lower your rates because people need water. Uh, Lorth Appeal is not happy, but he walks away. The kids, of course, are happy because now they have a job and they get to do stuff like hang out at Jabba's old palace and get their asses kicked by uh, Black Chrysanthemum. More on that later. <laughs> so Boba uh, goes back into the uh, the back to tank where he's dreaming back to dreams about Camino and his days roaming the sands on Bantha back as a Tuscan. He dreams about this time he went to Mos Eisley. He passes the stormtrooper helmets on a spike, which is uh, dates this particular event to uh, around the time of season one of The Mandalorian, where we see a similar image in, I 
believe, episode five of season one of The Mandalorian. Boba gets an audience with a representative from the Pike Syndicate. The Tuscans apparently are providing protection to the Pikes who are mining spice in the area of the Dune Sea. But the Pikes say, listen, the Kintan Striders, who are the gang that we have seen throughout this season uh, through uh, different flashbacks, um, they have that little swoop kind of logo. They have – we're paying them protection. So listen, the Pikes are happy to pay for a service. We just don't want to pay twice. So Boba says, listen, I'll take care of it. I will take care of the Kintan Striders. On the way back to the village, Boba sees smoke and he gets to this village and he realizes his whole tribe has been exterminated. Even the Banthas on a tent, he sees the uh, swoop sign of the Kintan Striders and he's like, that's it. There's going to be trouble. Boba walks off. And then the dream is rudely interrupted by the meaty paw of Black Kersantan around Boba's throat. And then we get a great kick-ass sequence in which uh, Boba gets absolutely ironed out by an angry Wookiee in what is really one of the great action scenes in a Disney show on television ever. It's really fun. I enjoyed it. It's fun to see Boba and his... Boba and his little gang of ragtag kids just getting the absolute shit kicked out of them. <laughs> so Black Chrysanthemum, we should add, first of all, a longtime bounty hunter um, has, at least in the comics, let's see if this carries over to live action. But in the comics, mm-hmm. like, had steel plates, like, cybernetically implanted in his hands, like, without anesthesia. So that made him angry, but also made him, like, a tremendously deadly, like, gladiatorial fighter. Black Chrysanthemum used to go to the gladiatorial pits and fight just like for fun. It was never forced to do it. It was just like, I, I like beating the shit out of people. Also the scar on his eye, that's from a, a run in with Obi-Wan. So all of which is to say black Chrysanthemum, longtime bounty hunter for Jabba, uh, which is where he met Boba Fett in the first place back in the day is a very deadly creature who, uh, yeah. and we get, we get that on full display in this scene. Like Boba is smacking Black Chrysanthemum with his gavvy stick. It's sticking out of Black Chrysanthemum's back. The space zoomers. Kids are like stabbing the kids him. kids show up with like, yeah, knives and laser knives and shock chains. Just like, yeah, there's one kid who's like shooting <laughs> uh, shooting Black Chrysanthemum. The, the lasers are like not doing anything. They're very brave <laughs> in this case, but nothing happens. Black Chrysanthemum is absolutely yeah, whipping their ass. Help. The Gamorreans show up. Black Chrysanthemum tackles them into the throne room, bites one of the Gamorreans. It turns into a pig roast. It was very, very sad. Then Fennec Shan shows up and is like, I'm going to do, I'm going to fight smarter, not harder. And I'm going to push this button and Black Chrysanthemum falls into the now vacant Rancor pit and is now the prisoner of Yeah, Boba also Fett. I have to say, Kieran Gillen, who uh, was one of the creators of Black yes. he shared a really good tweet where he said, originally, like, when he was putting the story together for the Star Wars comics, he just called him Nubaka, and that was the name. <laughs> <laughs> Which I um, just love. And now every time I see this, like, heavy metal fucking Wookiee, I'm just like... New backer. So Kieran Gillen's uh, Darth Vader, which is where, uh, and Star Wars comics, which is, again, where Black Crescented made his uh, debut, are great. Legitimately, like, really, really good and give a lot of context about stuff that was happening, like, outside of the famous battles that appear on Mm -hmm. screen in the Star Wars movies. And Kieran Gillen is just, like, a a G. Is just, like, actually... A great and coming comic back to the X Men soon with Immortal X Men, yes. so it's going to be very cool. Let's oh, go. Also, kind of comic centric. Something this show has really gotten me thinking about is like in the comics, it's revealed that like Doctor Aphra, I think she's like eight 
years younger than Boba Fett or something. Yeah. So I feel like it's really cool that with this show getting to see Boba where he is now, we're kind of establishing that if we get to see Dr. Afra, who is this really cool kind of space adventurer, yeah, space like kind Indiana of Jones archaeologist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, if we get to see her, I think I was always wondering whether when they inevitably adapt her, because she's very popular, um, it would be a younger version. But I really love the idea that we might get like a 30-something Dr. Afra because that just feels right. I feel like it's only a matter of time now. Mm-hmm. Once we saw Black Chrysanthemum, so a longtime yeah. running mate of, of Dr. Afra, they were allies, they were occasional antagonists, but mostly allies uh, the whole time although they left on kind of complex terms last time yeah. that they saw each other, I think we'll see Dr. Afra. I, in fact, like there's, you know, as an aside, there's been a lot of speculation that we would see Kira from a Star Wars story as the head of Crimson yes. Dawn. I kind of feel like that won't happen. It feels like the Pikes are definitely the gang that is like the antagonist. That said, I would not at all be shocked to see Dr. Afra. I wonder this. if that's what they're going to do. I think maybe it feels like Kira could easily fit into this, but yeah. also... You know, um, the actress who plays her, we're Amelia Clark, we're about to see her take on a massive role in Secret Invasion. And I wonder yeah. if that's a little bit too soon for the crossover or if it's They can a, age her well, I mean, she's, they, yeah, yeah, they, 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 they could put like makeup and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, she would be an older character because yeah. like against Star Wars Story, uh, Han Solo's Star Wars Story is like 20 years before this. Yeah, so. in fact, they could even just cast someone else but have her as Kira. I hadn't yeah. really thought about that. Just have a different, older, like a really established actor. But yeah, Doc, as soon as I saw Black Chrysanthemum, I was like, oh. We're going to get is Dr. This, is Dr. Afra going to be here? I, I feel like we're going to get soon? Dr. Really, really fun character uh, who, again, is like space Indiana Jones. Yeah, okay. and, is, and fits Boba Fett as well because she plays on both sides. Yes. We we meet her with dark side connections and she can she does has a very she's a very morally gray character and follows kind of her own moral compass like Boba. Yes. Later over a big feast which Boba is not at all interested in because he's not interested in the trappings of power and also again I think this speaks to his time with the Tuscans. He probably mm-hmm. feels like you know, as a Tuscan, we would never waste this amount of food. This is insane. Boba is thinking about how he's going to respond to this latest assassination attempt on him. He knows that everybody on Tatooine and in the galaxy who are involved with the syndicates are watching to see if he's going to come out weak. Shand says, hey, uh, it's probably the huts, and why don't you wait for them to show their hand? Which is like, were there not just two assassination attempts the on Boba Fett's life? They want him the, dead. The hand That's is the hand. trying to kill him. <laughs> I love you, babe, but like uh, the hand is like assassinate Boba Fett. So we know what it is. Eighty-eight <laughs> comes in and uh, announces, "Hey, guess what? The huts are here with a gift." Fennec and Boba go outside to the gates. The huts apologize for trying to kill Boba. They admit that they hired Black Chrysanthemum. It's unclear, I would add, if they hired the first assassins. Do we think the Huts hired the first assassins as well? I don't know. That's that's what's kind of unclear because this apology is like, are they apologizing to cover up the first one or they seem completely oblivious to it? So yeah, I is think- there like a secondary? I think it might be that there's like a secondary threat that's a little bit more personal, a little bit less right. to do with the the whole like new life as a warlord crime lord kind of thing yeah i i i do wonder because they were so ready to say yeah we hired uh, the wookie so very interesting 
Um, to smooth over that little thing of us trying to kill you, uh, <laughs> please accept this gift of a rancor. The huts deliver a rancor complete with rancor handler Danny Trejo. <laughs> He had to come, man. It it's a Robert Rodriguez it picture. Long. It's a Robert Rodriguez picture. Danny Trejo had to be in it. Uh, and Boa is like, this is awesome. Uh, but also, you guys have to leave the planet and never come back. And the twins are like, you got it. But just so you know, you should also leave too because the mayor has been playing all sides against the middle. The mayor told us that uh, we could have this territory, but then he also uh, promised it to you and he also promised it to another syndicate. So you should also leave too. And Boba's like, well, you can have your Wookiee back. And they're like, no, we don't, we don't want him. We're leaving. We don't <laughs> want, yeah, we don't want internecine gang war to pop off. We're going to go back to Nal Hutta and just do our thing. So Boba lets Black Crescenta go and he says, hey, as a warning, just some life advice for you. Don't work for Skug Holes. We later learn in what is an absolutely delightful scene from Danny Trejo, the space's own Caesar Milan of rancors, <laughs> um, that rancors are emotionally complex creatures. This one happens to be depressed right now, probably because of the uh, transportation, the fact that it's kept in chains. It's got a blindfold on. It is apparently a calf bred for the fighting pits. And Rancor, we learn, develop a deep emotional bond with the first face that it sees, thus the Any blindfold. Face. So this scene is like, it reminds me of my mom who said she didn't want a dog and then we got a dog and <laughs> I would just hear her talking to the dog all the time. So Boba is immediately smitten with the rancor. Danny Trejo tells uh, Boba that the witches of Dathomir used to woo, ride woo, Boba, woo. used to ride them through the woods. And Boba's like, whoa, that sounds great. You know, I used to ride a creature much bigger than this, you need to train me and the Rancor about how to, how to be a, a rider and a mount. Now, let me just say yes, as an aside. that's like two of the coolest Easter eggs in this whole yes. episode. So Boba, I was like, wait, wait a second. Boba is seen riding a giant creature in the famed and reviled and Star beloved Wars. beloved by me. Beloved, beloved by, by me. you. <laughs> beloved by me. Star Wars holiday special. It's yes. unclear what the creature is. It's like a purple brontosaurus. Yeah. And also as well, I think that that sh that short, it's an animated short, um, which really takes from like a Mobius-esque kind of yes, 70s very Mobius animation. That is a big influence on this series, tonally. Mm -hmm. It's really surreal. It's very much about aesthetic and tone, and the first two episodes really lean to it. So I just thought that was so cool that they I directly... Mean, uh, basically, like, the holiday special is canon now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were already teasing it because uh, the weapon in The Mandalorian is seen in that holiday yes. special. But, like, this is the first time where Boba mentions it as it's something that actually happened to him. So I love that. That made me so happy. And I love the Witches of Dathomir. That's an incredible EU thing. Massive part of, uh, you know, Clone yes, Wars. Yes, the great, so. really, really cool Legends thing uh, that is now apparently canon. I'm glad that that is Yeah, yeah, and uh, they, they have some really cool Witches of Dathomir stuff if you want to know more about them in, in the Clone Wars series, um, which is really trippy dark occult kind of star wars stuff so it's really fun and i think it's the fact that they're mentioned here is not just a little throwaway thing i think that that aspect that darker aspect the magic aspect of star wars is something that with more shows like this coming out is probably going to be something that we see more of that's a great point because some of black chrysanthemum's early adventures mm -hmm. with dr afra also involve this kind of like 
quasi-magical force users who turned out to be under the influence of like these, like of something else, but still this kind of very occult, witch-like organization. That's very interesting and a great call, Rosie. I wonder if we will get more more of that. Continuing, uh, Danny Trejo uh, removes the blindfold from the Rancor and we get to see the Rancor's super gross and scary little uh, (laughs) eyes. And it is... It's like love at first sight, man. It's like it's like I was waiting for like a doo-wop love song to happen as they <laughs> lock eyes, like jump, jump, ooh, doo, da. Some uh, romantic Bo- jizz music for, yeah. the, for the two Bo- of them. <laughs> Boba, and then this gives uh, gives way to a hilarious moment where Boba is like giving the rancor scritches and the rancor is like you know like uh you know purring and stuff and 88 comes in is like about to say something and lord fed is like not now i'm petting my (laughs) i'm petting my rancor i'm busy (laughs) and 88 is say is like hey uh, you wanted me to get you an appointment with with the mayor uh, well, guess what? The mayor is icing you out. The mayor says he's busy for 20 straight days. <laughs> Sounds realistic. I know. So Boba Fennec and the Zoomers go over to the mayor's office. The mayor's majordomo is like, hey, uh, he's booked up. I, I'm really sorry. If you want to, like, take a seat or maybe I can take a message. And then Fennec Shed is like, do you see my laser pistol, my laser blaster? <laughs> and so uh, the majordomo is like, oh, OK, I'll go get him. Goes into the mayor's office, locks the door, and makes a run for it. The Zoomers give chase on their custom, uh, very George Lucasy speeder bikes. Mm-hmm. I saw a lot of, like, this is not my Star Wars kind of comments on the internet about the kids and the bikes and the colorfulness. I'll just say that whether you found it goofy or not, the idea of, like, modded hot rods is so part of Star it's Wars' so DNA. George Lucas. It's George Lucas to a T. Yeah. This is like what George Lucas like, as a teenager dreamed about. This the speed of the chase, I will say. It was, was maybe a little, a little bit speed. slow. No, it was a little low speed. Exactly. Saul just pointed out American graffiti. I'm saying yes. this is like pure pure Lucas. Like mm-hmm. and and I love that I love one of my biggest tropes in any show that will hook me in is like a ragtag group of teens that I can I care it. about. I love so it as well. I love it. And also the really cool thing is like when when they go through and they destroy this painting of, of Jabba the Hutt, but it's a Ralph McQuarrie oh uh, image, right? <laughs> so just, it's like... The, the beautiful, priceless <laughs> Ralph McQuarrie portrait of Jabba in his throne room in yeah. repose on his slab. And the he... uh, the Twi'lek dancing slaves around him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, his hand beautiful. dipped in the bowl of 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 like amphibian uh, snacks, whatever those are. <laughs> yeah, and you get and and you get that nice the the concept art of Star Wars has become such a big part of these shows because it's at the end of the credits. So you get this nice shout out to the original visionary concept artist of Star Wars, which I which I love. Like this is a big tone shift from the last two episodes, but I think big it's time. really. It's got a lot of nice nods and and little Star Wars Easter eggs and world building bits for people who kind of really come to these shows for that. Yeah, I agree. I, I, one thing that I think Star Wars, their t- their television offerings, whether it's animated or live action, I think the one thing that they do maybe better than any other kind of sci-fi serialized IP generated story is they're 
able to balance a kind of fan servicey Easter egg event, but they're mm-hmm. able to present it in a way that's like, if you don't know anything, you don't know who Black Chrysanthemum is, you don't know yeah. who the, the Beaumont monks are, you're still like, that's cool and I want to know more, whatever that is. That yeah. is really interesting. The creature work is incredible. And like, if you saw the internet after Black Chrysanthemum was introduced, that was like so many fan vids and like just like hilarious like memes of him surrounded by hearts and you know (laughs) i think kieran another tweet kieran did was like kieran gillen said yeah you either something like you die the hero or you live long enough to see people thirsting after a wookie you create it (laughs) so i think they they balance that because creatures are such an important part of star wars and i think that's something rodriguez really understands absolutely i saw a uh... I saw a TikTok that was like, uh, my friends are calling me a furry because I'm in love with Black Chrysanthemum. <laughs> I'm like, and I was like, honey, you are a furry if you're in love with Black Chrysanthemum. He like, is an like, anthropomorphic bear creature. He's like essentially a furry, just with better proportions. <laughs> yes. more, more normal proportions. Okay, so the, uh, the chase concludes. And again, if there is a nitpick about this episode, I have a few. I, it is a very low speed chase. It's Somebody like could me- have run at the same time. It's it's like max thirty five miles an hour. Anyway, uh, they and the zoomers end up running the mayor, uh, the major domo, through a fruit market and into a wall. He tells Boba that, listen, the mayor is working with the Pikes, and also he's left. Later, as one of Boba's uh, young gang members looks on, a starliner arrives on the planet, and an army of Pikes uh, disembarks. Boba gets the news, and he is prepping for war. And we are on to episode four. Here's my my small nitpick. And we'll see because, like, obviously the, the season is nowhere near done yet. Mm-hmm. I was a little disappointed that it feels like Black Chrysanthemum might be leaving us for the time being. Like, if that – I was like, this can't be it. We need more of him. That yeah. is my nitpick is that it seemed like the Huts and Black Chrysanthemum were going to be more of it. And now they're kind of, like, exiting the scene. That said, I hope they're still around. I wonder if because it's, like – third episode i wonder if it's black chrysanthemum goes and then at some point in a big conflict near the end he returns with afra or something that is the dream it feels like he's going and coming back i also feel like one i feel like doing huts with the twins is i can't imagine how hard that is to actually have them as a major part of the show so i feel like that could be part of it but that also feels to me as if they went a little bit too easy and they yeah. could team up with this other syndicate or they could have some greater plan and we might see them again. I might be wrong, but it feels a little bit like this is more of a first act break and then we might see everyone reconvene nearer the end of the season. Agree. I'm hoping for a Dr. Afro pull as well. Let's talk briefly about, I don't want to say this is like the Mephisto of this series because Mephisto was always insane. That was yeah, never- Mephisto was just like a fun fan theory, but the nature of this stuff is- that you can put a fan theory out there in and people hold it up as the same way as a leak. And it's like, no, no, this is just something from the comics I want to see, but but it's probably not going to happen. So uh, a lot of theorizing before the series dropped and and now as it continues is that we will see Crimson Dawn led by Kira. The Crimson Dawn comic is ongoing right now. So like if you want to know more about what Kira has been up to as as the leader of that particular crime syndicate, you can check it out on Marvel Comics right now. That's in the midst of a run right now. Do you think we see Kira? I was like 100% yes. 
in episode one, two. And now I'm like, I kind of feel like it's just going to be the Pikes. I feel like we could see something of the Crimson Dawn. Like mm. they are active. I don't necessarily know if we'd have Kira, though it does seem like a kind of Lucasfilm at the moment thing to do would be to take something that people liked from a movie that's not necessarily going to continue and bring it in to a TV. And we're about to get, you know, tying things together from the prequel era and the new era and the original era. It makes sense when we're getting an Obi-Wan show and that we know that we're going to see Hayden in the Obi-Wan show, but also potentially in the Ahsoka show. So I don't know. I think that the Crimson Dawn will at least be referenced. I don't know whether Kira is going to be the face. For all we know, the Crimson Dawn is like gone. It's 19 years since the end of Solo. We don't know which people are still around. Well, Rosie, I can't wait to talk more with you about this show and about comics in general. Up next, The Hive Mind. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. seen all the video call fails by now the mute button mishaps the cat cameos people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off but none of this makes fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy bitsy baby duck it's too late fred it's too late when you realize it's better to do business in person it matters where you stay welcome to the hilton garden and fred the meeting room is right down the hall hilton for the stay A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Joining us now to discuss the HBO Max original Station Eleven, the adaptation of Emily St. John Mandel's novel of the same name, are two of my favorite people from Dune Pod, Jason and H. Fellas. Heyo! Yeah! What's happening? Let's talk about the apocalypse. <laughs> Let's do um, it. Finally. So this segment is coming about in part because <laughs> H basically hectored me on social media uh, to cover this. And, <laughs> and I don't know if you all read the book. Did you? Are, are you book readers on this one? 
No, no. haven't read the book. Looking mm-hmm. forward to reading it as soon as it's as soon as I see the episode that just came out. Won't spoil finale. it because it is quite different in it's quite different. I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, at, at least in the way uh, certain things unfold in the in the second and third acts. But I bought it at a airport like a st- this was about a year after it came out. So it was in paperback. I bought it at an airport and probably the best airport book buy I've, <laughs> I've, I've ever purchased. Wow. It's, I've read a lot of apocalyptic fiction. I'll right. just tell you that right off the bat. I've watched a lot of post-apocalyptic movies. I'm mm-hmm. a fan of the genre. And uh, Station Eleven was unlike any of those that I've ever read. And and I think that the I think the show has really carried forward a lot of the things that made it unique, mainly the idea of culture and stories and the human need to kind of like share experiences about the thing we're reading or the thing that we have watched or the thing that we have listened to and how that is really what makes us human beings. It's like the basis of society, the basis of our relationships is this need to share. Oh, wow, man, I just heard this thing that's amazing and I need to talk to you about it. Have you heard it too? That kind of idea. Um, Yeah. So, fellas, tell me your uh, feelings about this story so far and then let's dive into this. I'm really interested in the idea that this is the hopeful post-apocalyptic show (laughs) that is happening in the midst of a global pandemic, which still has us in its grips. Uh, H, you, you go first since you 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 lambasted me first. <laughs> well, I, so so I you know I had heard about this novel and I knew that people really liked it, but I didn't get a chance to read it. And then when I heard it was being adapted, I just sort of like put any original novel on hold until I watch the adaptation and then go back and and check it out um, because I don't want to like be measuring the adaptation the whole time. And I know the yeah. work will stand up on its own later uh, for what it was, and I'll appreciate the differences. But nobody was talking about the show. So I watched the first couple episodes and I was like, holy shit, just the the artistry, the, you know, the creativity in the storytelling, the acting, the production design, like all of these things were incredible. And nobody was talking about it. So that was when I hit you up on Twitter. Uh, did not expect to be coming on the pod, but... Um, <laughs> I will say the the big unlock for me because yeah everyone I talk to is like oh great another post apocalyptic show do yep. I want to do I want to watch yep, this yep, yep. and so I was listening to so they have an official podcast uh, for Station Eleven on HBO Max that Patrick Somerville hosts mm-hmm. and he had Jerry, Jeremy Podeswa who is one of the uh, showrunners and oh, of course, uh, yes. and a director he said uh, something that was the big unlock for me which was there's just as much gained from this pandemic as mm. lost on the show. And they wanted to investigate, of course, there's huge pain and trauma and all of that, but there were a lot of things that were gained in terms of human connection and community that was built and appreciated in a way that we maybe don't always appreciate it today. Um, And so that's what they really wanted to explore. That and the combination of putting it 20 years in the future as opposed to years one through five, and it's about building your whatever. It's about how they're reacting many years uh, past that. I think that's great. I like what you said about the power of storytelling as being central to this, as, as being central to this 
narrative, uh, because I think that's one of the things that makes it hopeful. I'm also, like you, a big consumer of post-apocalyptic dystopian fiction. And in many ways, this is like the anti The Road. This is the anti Cormac McCarthy. It is very much the anti The Road. I I was thinking that watching the the most recent uh, episode, I believe it's episode nine. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. The story of of, of, uh, Dr. Yes. We'll call him Dr. Jeevan for now. Um, yeah. uh, sorry, continue. No, I, and so I, I think like the, if you look at the road, so that's something we can spoil. The road is about, you know. <laughs> we can, uh, let's spoil the, the road. Let's spoil the road. It's been <laughs> for a while. I love it, but it's essentially about the universe is indifferent and cruel and it's all about survival. And so you might as well have a strong moral core and carry the fire um, because, you know, horrors are going to happen to you and we're going to show you the horrors in in terrible detail. Uh, And this show consciously averts your gaze from the horror. It, 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 oh, yes. know, it knows no bodies. You, right. There's no pile of corpses in this, even though you hear about it. You don't right. see mm-hmm. very, you don't see anybody sick. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, go on. I'm, I'm, no, I'm again no, interrupting you. No, it's great. Like the, but like the, the show knows that you're going to want to know those details. Like, well, how sick are people getting? Where are the bodies? Like what's happening? <laughs> and so it does things when like, you know, a television broadcast will come on and an announcer saying like, Shit's yeah. really bad. Everyone's dying a lot faster than we thought. And you're like, and you, and you know, you find yourself leaning in, like being like, okay, tell me how bad it is. Do I need to get better masks? What do I need to do? Yeah. Like, you know, do I need to wash my groceries again? Like you're so conditioned to respond to that kind of information. Especially and now. Then, and then yeah. it, tur- and it just turns it off. It just says, nope, we're not going to, that's, you don't need any more of that right now. It's so yeah. gentle in the way that it does that dystopian storytelling that it is, it is again, like the anti the road. It's never going to show you the basement full of people whose legs you're going to eat. Like that's just not the, the show that they're making. Can I, can I just quickly confess that I also found the road uplifting? Okay. Well, that's, (laughs) it's just, just because there's, there's a scene where, where the father and son, he loves to eat, he loves to eat legs in the reality. So they're like starving to death, right? Father and son are starving to death on the pages and it, and you are being rubbed into it. And then they meet the old blind man on the road and he still gives food to the blind man. The fact that a human could still seek Mm. connection and kindness in that moment to me was powerful. Okay, I'm glad you 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 brought up the road because this is anti the road and it's and for me it's anti the road in a kind of very simple way which is the road everything is devastated in the road and we are so far past the apocalypse that all the canned food all this mm-hmm. shit is yep. is gone, gone and yeah. it, essentially the only thing to eat is other people. <laughs> um, Station Eleven doesn't take that tack. It takes a, a an angle in which all the kind of detritus of late capitalism still exists. And therefore people are able to sustain themselves with some effort. You don't have to go out and find some stuff, but you're, you're able to live in, in this kind of, in the ruins of late capitalism as this kind of desiccated like Disneyland playground. Mm-hmm. It, and it's this kind of theme that has popped up and up uh, again over and over again ever since, you know, Dawn of the Dead in 1970, whatever that was. Yeah. Uh, you know, set its characters loose in a, in a mall, in a mall. Yeah. Uh, mm. surrounded by dead people. I feel strangely conflicted about that move because on the one hand, it's like, 
yes, the apocalypse is terrible. So many people uh, lost their lives. Everyone was touched by it. It is uh, tragedy and horror. On the other hand, it would be it's it weirdly scratches this itch of wouldn't it be cool to just like have a lot of stuff? To have everybody's stuff. <laughs> we can just go into everybody's house and take their stuff. They're not around anymore. We can just have their stuff. Wouldn't that be fun? In much the same way I feel conflicted about The Walking Dead turned into, in my opinion, not a right. not a show that I wanted to watch after seasons like two and three. But right. a lot right. of the way I felt conflicted about The Walking Dead is, you know, I feel like I feel like a lot of the fans of that show just wanna shoot their neighbors. You know Absolutely. what I mean? Like, like that, that's the, the kind of impetus of that show is like, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't the apocalypse be cool? Because then you could just shoot your neighbors. The people you who know, are really into that show are definitely looking at what kind of stuff you've got and are just like, yeah, okay, yeah. like he's, he's got a really good like solar panel set up over there and like, you know, some ham hocks that I'm going to take as soon as, <laughs> as soon as the purge siren goes off. <laughs> but uh, Hey, I agree with you in, in, in the, I think the thing that makes ho- the, uh, the road hopeful and station 11 hopeful is that it's basically about great tragedies were kind of like fires that burned away all the artifice. And, and basically what's left is how we treat each other mm. or you can treat each other with kindness or are we going to exploit each other for our stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, all the heroes in Station Eleven are, they're hardened by this experience, severely hardened, obviously dealing with trauma, you know, without the, the, the kind of like late modern life language about how to deal with that trauma. But they are uh, kind to each other. They're a family to each other. And they are trying to keep alive the great and emotionally fulfilling works of human of human uh, culture at least in the english language canon you know all the right. other stuff is gone we as far <laughs> right. as we know right, right. <laughs> yeah maybe some Billy traveling Shakespeare yeah yeah and and some other stuff and and that's it yeah. The, the 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 other part of it though is that you touched on too is like the importance it, it's not just it's it is stuff but it's specifically stuff for making art like the kind mm. of stuff that they value is like art making stuff like there is an aspect to it which is like you know the meme of you know not a phone in sight just vibes like you know of yeah, just yeah. like oh like wouldn't this be nice to just be able to be disconnected but the other part of it is is that they are driven by being storytellers and they are driven yeah. by by art making and so the show's interest in the process of art making itself about what it means to make art in a post-pandemic environment when the show itself was created in a post-pandemic environment. Yeah. If if you're the sort of audience that is into the level of, if, if you're into the process of art making itself, this show is just incredible catnip because it happens to have been a show about art making in a pandemic that was made during a pandemic. And, you know, those issues are what are, are the texts of the show. I uh, think- I mean, one thing that really strikes out on that is like all of the costuming that they do, both when yeah. Ki- Kirsten yeah. is doing early costuming and then later the the prophet's followers and then the plays themselves. It's like this super lo-fi apocalyptic Michel Gondry vibe, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which I love. And it's yeah. just like the combination of that with the occasional flashes of Dr. Eleven, um, you know, as this kind of like very slick looking um, science vibe that you have no explanation why or what is happening, I think is incredibly powerful. I did have to, yesterday, to prep for this, I watched Hamlet 
four and a half hours, right? <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. Wait, the, which one? The, which which Hamlet? Branagh's. Branagh's. Okay. Uh, 96 with Derek Jacoby as, uh, yeah, yeah. as Claudius. And um, so I had never seen Hamlet before um, and never read Hamlet. So I wasn't getting everything, but I knew in episode two that there was a lot to what she was experiencing on stage as she's performing that and having flashbacks to getting some important news in day zero. So it's just incredible how they are using Hamlet as a mechanism and the play to both communicate with other people and also to heal themselves and each yeah. other. That's yeah. really the power of what they're doing. And, and here's, uh, I, I love that as well. There is also, uh, I don't want to spoil too much about this show because again, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure how many people are watching it, but I feel like if they do find it, there's some really important emotional beats that I don't want to spoil, but a lot hinges on a indie and, and like very indie graphic right. novel, like, you know, self-published as far as there are a handful of copies that people know of that are out in the world. And the people that found them have been very, very moved by them. They, first of all, come from a very emotional place. The person who created them created them uh, under the sway of really intense passion. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of that comes through and touches the people who read it. It's a very sci-fi story about Dr. Eleven and the undersea. And this is um, kind of sci-fi story of betrayal and love and adventure. But, you know, we're living in a world now where there's this pandemic going on. Uh, many people have lost their lives. Every, uh, everyone has in some way or fashion been affected. And the most popular, one of the most popular touchstones for stories right now are comic book movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this weird mirror image of the thing that's happening now that for me at least helped clarify a lot of the way I feel about this, these stories, which are, you know, they, they uh, comic book stories are criticized a lot. They're extremely popular. They're pushing out uh, one way to think about them is they're pushing out every other kind of story that we used to watch in the movie theater. But another way to think about them is as these touchstones, these kind of like gathering places where people, a place where mm-hmm. people can still get together and agree on things and converse in this like language of wonder and adventure about a thing that is clearly like emotionally affecting them, even though it is ostensibly a very colorful kid's story. That parallel in this story feels really meaningful to me. Like, and again, feels like this very primal thing uh, that makes us human, which is this need to talk about the thing that we just watched or that we just listened to or that we just read, find the other people who read or watched or listened to the thing and just share notes about it. How did this hit you? You know, it's Mm -hmm. like the crayon box where you first realize, oh, is the blue that I'm seeing the same blue as the other person is seeing? (laughs) Uh, It's this kind of level set of reality where you're trying to understand the human condition through the eyes of another person by comparing notes on this thing that you both uh, imbibed. And that felt very real and very much what we are all doing all the time to me. I, it mm. feels so special to me. The show feels like a miracle because it, it, because of that reason. Like, it's a show about a pandemic that was made during a pandemic, and, and we are still living in that pandemic. And it's about 
you know, this graphic novel that we never get to know the full details of, but is in, right. an incredibly meaningful story to the people who are in this world 20 years after they've read it and such that they want to talk about their favorite lines from it. They want to recite their favorite passages from it. And then similarly, the show itself becomes to a certain type of audience, which I think we are in, of people who value the art of storytelling, who think about how stories are told, who think about how stories affect the way that we live our lives and are is helping us live through this very weird moment um, because of the parallels to what's going on in the story. Like that just feels like t- it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter as much if it wasn't happening right now. It wouldn't matter as much if it didn't have all of those details, but it somehow miraculously does. And it just feels like it does feel like a gift. And it's not like the pandemic was worth happening so we could get this television show. Right. But like it, it is it is it is great that we have this television show in the pandemic. Jason pro pandemic. I'm pro pandemic. Yeah. Well, I'm so pro station eleven. Yeah. I am for the pandemic. Well, I and, and it is worth calling out just kind of like the masterful storytelling that's going on here. So it's it's a very complex story that takes place uh in multiple timelines with various characters, and they are displaying that in a way that is really evocative and well done. Let's let's just say, without spoiling it, we do right. know that the story follows at the beginning. You have the characters of Jeevan, uh, played by Himesh Patel, and then Kirsten, um, who's played by Matilda Lawler, who's amazing. And that's in, that's in year zero, and they start yeah. out together. Um, and then later, 20 years later, Kirsten is no longer with Jeevan, and we don't know why or what happened. And that right. is this incredibly significant element for the show, but it doesn't get revealed what happens until episode seven. And that creates this incredible mythic tension uh, that when you're finally hearing that story, but then they also do this way of injecting the adult version, they have a very clever technique that they use so that mm-hmm. the adult version of Kirsten is able to be part of that early process. And it's magic. It's just pure yeah. magic. Uh, so yeah. I was stunned. Um, and I want to give a shout out, obviously, Patrick Somerville, Maniac, Leftovers. Like, this guy has serious chops uh, for for showmaking. Yeah. yeah, The Leftovers, maybe the greatest like season two rebound from a season one that was like a little left me a little cold and disinterested. And then season two just like went yeah. straight to your heart. Uh, let's talk about, so this has been described as the hopeful post-apocalyptic show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree that it's hopeful, but I'm unclear why I, I've been trying to unpack, like, why is this hopeful? Is it, is it the storytelling aspect? What is it about it? So what, what is it about it that first uh, grabbed both of you. I think the the part of the hopefulness that I latch onto in this is that I think we're at a moment in the pandemic right now where people are realizing that there is no going back. Like it's not like we're right. just gonna we're not gonna flatten the curve for another two weeks and then everything's gonna go back to normal. There's some new there's some new reality that's ahead of us that is still taking shape, but it's not what we were doing before. Uh, and that is that's a pretty sobering moment. This show posits a theory that. Yes, that is what happens. You go through some inflection point of tremendous change that obviously in the show is much worse than what we're living through right now, but still. And yet 
it's not all bad. The new reality is there is something to live for. You don't just survive in the style of the road by, you know, finding the last can of right. Coca-Cola that exists in the universe. You, you actually can continue to make things and love things and become new people and evolve as a person and become a truer version of yourself despite or even maybe because of this change in the world. That to me is the nugget of hope that the show represents. And the idea that there are people that are post-pandemic, right? There are people who, for whom this will, they will never experience that trauma. Um, they won't live through that piece that, that, so we, none of us lived through World War II. It's impossible for us to imagine the horror that a previous generation experienced. And yet for us, it is a normal, uh, you know, thing to exist. So that is, there is a constant renewal and rebirth, um, pregnancy and, you know, delivery in a new mm. generation is an important theme on the mm -hmm. show. Yeah. Um, episode nine, like I was crying tears of uh, joy a, and relief. It is a gut punch. It is a gut yeah. punch episode yeah. over and over again. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I was just like, Man, uh, transcending uh, at the end of that episode. So it was just a really- H reached its final form as a result <laughs> of that, that episode. Yeah. Can we talk about Mackenzie Davis? Yeah, I mean, she's just uh, brings a fearsomeness to this role that is really, really stunning. She's great. She's Amazing. so good. Everybody, everybody's good. Yeah. That's the other thing. You, you touched on it a little bit, the production value, the way it's shot, et cetera, the, mm -hmm. the props, the set design. This is one of the best looking and performed shows on television right now. It just looks, you know, as good as Book of Boba Fett looks filmed on the volume and at ILM. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this looks as good in everything that it does. Looks absolutely believable. You are immersed in in the in the environment. You feel like you are there with these characters, and everybody is just acting their ass off. It's fantastic. The mm. Mackenzie, da Mackenzie Davis, who's the Mackenzie Davis thing that brings me back to your question, Jason, about hope, because in episode two, she does a bit of Shakespeare. She does the mm -hmm. Hamlet's first speech from from Shakespeare. And it was the moment that the show clicked for me. Like it was the moment I like sort of sat forward in my seat and like sort of fa felt my face being pulled through the screen because like her <laughs> performance of it is 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 phenomenal. Jeremy Padezwa yeah. described it as she look, she's like has the qualities of like a silent film actress. Like just like her her eyes communicate so much before you even get the dialogue. Mm. And 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 the the point of the speech is about the loss of a parent. And so she's it's a speech about loss that's connected to things that have happened to her over the course of her 20 years in the pandemic. And that moment to me made me feel that like okay, like even though the world got ruined for these people, this moment of beauty and this 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 multi-leveled meaning of of loss can still happen in this world, and that is something like that. That's that's to me what made me first feel that this is a show about hope, not despair. But here's why I feel like it's hopeful, and I've I've thought a lot about this. We mentioned the storytelling aspect, the, the culture aspect of this story hinges on a, a group of characters who travel around. Doing, uh, doing Shakespeare for the people of the wasteland, essentially, which is like the uh, Great Lakes region of the Midwest. With an orchestra. Right, with an yeah. orchestra. Yeah. Uh, and first of all, I can't, again, as a fan of post-apocalyptic, apocalyptic fiction, I can't think of another story from the genre that has storytelling, culture, uh, discussions of of art and music 
in the story as part of the kind of like interior discussions that characters have. Mm-hmm. Usually it's like just about survival, kill the zombies, survive right. to the next day. How are we going to reform the government? Uh, you know, uh, the president is offshore in a battleship. How are we going to how are we going to reconnect with the forces on land? It's it's all stuff like that. Well, that's the very strategic version of the of the post-apocalyptic mm-hmm. landscape, which doesn't give you an entree into like how people would have experienced it. People would have experienced it like people, regular people would have experienced it by trying to grapple with it, with the language that they have, which would include the stuff that they have seen, the you know, movies that touch them. And so this idea of these people keeping these great stories alive is hopeful to me. And the other thing that is, is hopeful to me is I think we've all experienced, and we're talking about it right now, the feeling of watching something and it managing to say a thing that you've never been able to verbalize quite in that way before and having that be this light bulb moment. It's happened to me numerous times with a million different stories, whether it's Harry Potter, Star Wars, whatever. Game of Thrones, yeah. Where where all of a sudden you're like, that is a thing that I've always been grasping at without maybe knowing it, that this story just grasped in exactly the way that I felt and it – and that has added something to my life that is meaningful. This show is about that. This show is about that. You know, the motive for the traveling symphony are the words survival is insufficient. And, right. and that it, it has to be more. It has to be thriving. It has to be elevating. Um, and I, it's interesting that episode two was the final episode that they shot. And that's the one that it's all summertime. And yeah. uh, and when they're putting on that, that play of Hamlet. And it's so green. And even that opening scene, they're marching to parliament, give up the funk. Mm-hmm. Like that yeah. needle drop is huge. Or them sitting by the campfire playing music together. They are still even reduced back to campfire state, still finding that ability to elevate. Yeah, it's uh, that is what has really hit me about this show. And I think if people are, you know, a little wary in in COVID times of watching a show that is so close to the bone, I come away from every episode thinking, like, if anything, the pandemic is an opportunity to just kind of like be generous to each other in the like the lowest lift way possible. That's the I mean, the other thing I come away from the show thinking is like just like how easy it is to be without spending any money or actually any capital at all to just kind of like be nicer to people in a way that helps them somehow move on through this. Create something, Uh, share something, share, sharing something that we can all talk about that helps us deal with whatever this is. I think like escapism is a, is a word that's uh, tossed around a lot. And I think there is a, a significant amount of escapism in a lot of the stories, the popular stories that are going on now, but also like these are stories that are helping us process this time. And I think they, that we shouldn't, shouldn't be discounted. Do you think you, you fellows are going to read the book? Yeah, I think it'll be the next book I read for sure. Um, my wife is currently blazing a trail through the wheel of time books and like, oh, wow. is, is she? is, she's on like book six. Like I, I just keep getting like these updates, like from she's the slowing future. down though. That's slowing yeah. down. Cause she was burning through the first four. Yeah. I, she really liked the fifth one. And so like, wow. she, she, she's, I think she spent some time with that. And so she'll just like, you know, we'll, we'll be talking and I'll be like, well, I don't know what we're going to do about it. And she'll be like, well, 
the wheel wheels, what the wheel was. You know, I was like, okay, all right, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I played the Wheel of Time RPG, the, uh, the D20 version back in the day, but I had, wow. to drop, I had to drop off on book four or five. I was like, okay, this is just not going to get there. Book four or five is uh, apparently where a lot of wheel spinning happens, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm in the midst of the three body problem. I just finished Dark Forest, oh. which is unbelievable. Dark Forest. For those of you out there looking for some sci-fi to read during this time. Mm-hmm. That will melt your brain. Melt your brain. Now, Three Body Problem by Lu Zhijing. I'm, I, mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing the, the author's name correctly. Mm-hmm. Is a sci-fi trilogy about an alien invasion. And it is hard sci-fi with like actual science behind it. And book two, The Dark Forest, is fucking crazy. Just yeah. mind melting kind of sci-fi stuff. Can't recommend it highly enough if you're gonna if you're looking for something else to read. That's the, a that's a great wreck. The book I'm was finishing right now is is Parable of the Sower by Octavia yes. Butler, which is an, another dystopian novel. I and and does have like a similar it, it has a similar vibe in that like there's it's a perspective of a woman and it was like, you know, it was written by a woman. And so a woman in of the, color. Yeah. And so like, but like in the road, you know, there, I always joke about like that the road makes me feel terribly inadequate because basically your as value, a, as a father, yeah, yeah. yeah, as a father and a man, <laughs> it's like, if you don't know how to like field strip a rifle, if you yeah. don't know how to like weld, uh, you know, uh, a fence or, you know, just be handy and stuff like that. Like I can barely put together Ikea furniture. I'm like, well, I'm effed in the apocalypse. Like it's just not going to work out for me. Like the, these, these stories, like whether it's Octavia Butler, where the main character is a hyper empath who can feel the feelings of other pair uh, of other characters and is like writing her own, her writing her own gospel of, of, of what it means to change uh or uh or, you know or station 11 which is about you know the power of storytelling and finding hope even though the world has changed like those just have this other nurturing like different view on what it means to survive trauma and what it means to survive apocalyptic change and so it's a nice uh it's a nice respite from some of these hmm. other stories which i enjoy quite a bit too i just want to get one shot just if, if folks haven't checked it out hamlet pretty good <laughs> oh i'm gonna <laughs> It turns out, turns out Billy Shakes was onto something. Uh, was was really right in that stuff. My man, Billy Shakes. <laughs> okay, so as fans of apocalyptic fiction, let's leave let's leave uh, our listeners with some of our favorites from the genre. If if y'all uh, feel yeah. comfortable sharing uh, whichever ones you you've got. Hey, do you, do you have any favorites? Well, definitely. I mean, I, I was a huge Walking Dead fan uh, on the comic, you know, back in yeah, the day, yeah. but before that happened. And I, I actually do think that is an, an incredibly powerful one. Um, obviously, uh, Dawn of the Dead, as a, as a, like a 10-year-old uh, in 1980, seeing that, that changed everything for me. And yeah. that, I, that idea of... Um, I don't know, just looking at the world in a new way um, and seeing things fall down. That, that's, probably, uh, that's probably my favorite. Um, yeah. Jason? I mean, I I kind of go. I think I do actually. Despite my my recommendation, despite what I said about it, like the road is an incredible book to read. Like Kermit McCarthy's writing is is just is, is unbelievable. It'll just like really sear your brain. Maybe not the best one for 
the current times, but uh, is a, is an amazing <laughs> book. I, I actually I really like the Mad Max movies as a, as a post apocalyptic. Yeah. You know, particularly like Thunderdome, which is obviously can be. Like you were talking about another <laughs> uh, another movie that's like obsessed with storytelling or has storytelling as an element oh, of yes. it. I one of the post apocalyptic dystopian scenes that I think about the most, and I kind of continually come back to, is the end of Thunderdome. Is like yo, know, every night we do, you know, I tells the tale, yeah. and we lights the lights for those who are still wandering. Like that to me, that that idea of like you know the world's ended, but we're gonna carry the story forward is. Again, a, th- a big theme uh, in Station Eleven, and one that I I just love in fiction. As you know, we are all obviously people who love stories. We love looking at what makes story works and, and like why it touches us in a certain way. Probably people who are listening to this podcast have those kind of inclinations as well. Um, this type of show is worthy of your attention because it it will activate your brain on that level. Yeah, uh, I love these choices. Uh, a big fan of the road. Also, how about Cloud Atlas? Cloud Atlas is truly hopeful because the scope that it has, one of Cloud Atlas's messages is if you are being ruled by like a a brutal autocrat, just give it time because (laughs) in Mm -hmm. a thousand years or two thousand years, everybody will have chilled out and Mm -hmm. will have respect for each other. So that like Mm -hmm. that is a hopeful message uh, from Cloud. I love Cloud Atlas as well. Uh, How about the movie? How How are you with the movie? Uh, very bad. I think it aged perhaps worse than any other sci-fi movie of the last 12 to 15 years. I think everybody involved with it would probably uh, like us to not talk about it right here on this podcast, cease talking about it. So no one ever Googles it or looks at it or remembers that it happened. Okay. They shouldn't listen to the Dune Dune pod episode then. (laughs) No, but listen to that. Let's see. I, so the road I love as well, I think, Listen, Cormac McCarthy, whether you're a book reader or a literary person or whatever, his ability to combine like almost narrative writing of like biblical power with dialogue that feels like you are listening to just regular people speak, that contrast is unbelievable. And he just is able to conjure like the full force of human emotion, the way a father feels for a son, the way the, the a child looks at a world, even a desolate world with some kind of wonder and curiosity that is at once dangerous and makes that child extremely vulnerable, but is also something precious to be secured for as long as possible. To, he captures that in that book in a way that is unbelievable. Dawn of the Dead also. Mm. The opening of Dawn of the Dead is one of the greatest things that's ever been put to mm-hmm. film, period. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Oryx and Crake. Did you read that? I did not read that. Let me put that on Margaret my, Atwood. Let me mm. put that on my list. Um, the Dog Stars uh, by Peter mm. Heller came mm. out, uh, I, I want to say, about 10 years ago. Post-apocalyptic fiction set in Colorado. Mm. One of the great, like, man and his dog stories yeah. in recent, like, uh, sci-fi. Um, and then... Uh, Children of Men, I think, is when I saw it, it felt like prophecy. It really felt like you're watching something that could happen. And yet, despite all of that, and despite many of the things that you see in that movie actually coming to pass in some form or fashion uh, in the intervening years, it is also a story that feels hopeful. Those are those are my uh, Children of Men. We just rewatched that for the pod recently, and it is. 
it holds up. It's like one of those, like, why isn't everyone talking about this movie? Like this why movie isn't is everybody talking about this movie that predicted everything that would happen right. in the next, <laughs> right. like it is, it feels as present as uh, the day it came out. It is. And it is uh, truly like bravara filmmaking. Some of the yeah. one takes in yeah. that are like mind blowing stuff. That's an incredible movie. Ch- Children of Men is a special genre. That's what Jason coined the term the slow shitty apocalypse. Uh, where <laughs> yeah. like the world has ended, but you still have to wait in line to get coffee and you know yeah. go to your shitty job. Yeah. It's like every like you know what you know mankind is ruined, but like you still have to get you still for some reason have to wait for like you know groceries. You have to wait to like you know get your I mean, oil changed. What, or I mean, and this is what we were living through this right is, now. It's yeah, like exactly. pretty much sucks. Uh but yeah. if you still have the wherewithal to go to the grocery store that you're one of the lucky ones yep. uh, and life in some form of boring fashion continues apace. Yeah. Gentlemen, this has been a really fun. I hope people who, I hope people will give station 11 a try. Yeah. yeah. If not read the book, the book is fantastic and very, and not at all harrowing in the same kind of way that the show is. They're both harrowing in their, in their way, but not like, it's not the road. Let's just say that. Oh, yeah. If you were scared off by the road, it's not the road. Give it a try. Watch through episode two would be my advice as well. Because episode one deals with like the is the most kind of present uh, of things going south. So like watch through episode two to just give yourself a chance to convince yourself that it's not about just like, you know, post-apocalyptic pandemic porn. Like it's not just going to traumatize you for for no reason. Where can uh where can people find your your stuff? What do you have to plug for us? Yeah, DudePod is on all major platforms. So wherever you listen to uh, this episode, you can listen to DudePod as well. And I'll, I'll just call out a couple of films that we've covered recently. Um, yes. We just had our season finale um, in December for season four was Tron Legacy. And then came <laughs> back, which is killer. <laughs> Really yeah. fun episode. And then French Dispatch was our premiere that launched this week. And then we've got Ghostbusters, Starship Troopers, Thin Red Line, oh Bound, God. and Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2 all coming up in the next month. So, Wait, like, who's on your who's on your Starship Troopers episode? Uh, that's Slim from 70 Millimeter nice. and the Letterboxd podcast. That. Yeah. yeah. That's really going to be sick. a special one. Mm-hmm. The, when when H says that Dune Pod is available on all major platforms, he means that it is also on a like N gear play playable device that's been stored in an airport tower that you can you, know, <laughs> down the, you can go and retrieve. Man, in I gotta tell years you, I wanted an N gear. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. At a certain point in time, I was like, that is going to be the thing. <laughs> it was not the thing. But yeah, people can listen to any episode. Like, just choose your favorite movie and give it a listen. You don't have to be a hardcore Dune fan. Uh, we just talk about great movies and have a lot of fun. Jason and H, thank you for joining us. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. Up next, Nerd Out. In this week's Nerd Out, Ashley Clark pitches us on CW's Superman and Lois. As anyone who's been a comics fan for any stretch of time knows, when you've got multiple writers, you're going to get multiple interpretations and some of them are going to suck. I first met Superman through the grainy lens of a VHS tape of the Fleischer Superman cartoons, and I loved it. The cartoons were beautiful and the action sequences were great, and he was fighting mummies. I had a fixation with ancient Egypt, but that was about as far as it went. Then in college, an acquaintance introduced me to The Long Halloween and convinced me to watch those 90s Batman cartoons that I wasn't able to get out in the sticks where I lived. 
And in the time of life when you're most inclined to try and find yourself, I felt like I had been taken back home. I was the little kid plopped in front of the Zenith console television again. So why is Batman not my favorite? In short, Smallville. It's cheesy in a good way and sometimes falls into WB slash CW pitfalls in a bad way. But mostly it's a show about a guy just trying his best to do good, to do the right thing. And so I grabbed up everything Clark Kent I could find. I devoured the movies and read all the graphic novels I could get at the library. Some of the movies and comics I liked, but a lot of it didn't ring true to the character that I was introduced to with the cartoons. Or it wasn't true to the roots of the character, the guy who stood up for the common man because he is one of them. Superman is a guy with absolute power, but he chooses to do the selfless thing. When Man of Steel finally came out, it was the first time as a rural Appalachian that I saw the side of Clark that often gets lost in the planet bench-pressing, his deeply blue-collar roots. But I also had to contend with the dichotomy of his godlike aloofness. And so I wasn't excited when I heard that the CW was making Superman and Lois. So many DC writers seem to treat Superman like he's boring, like he needs to be fighting the biggest monsters, or he needs to become evil or fascist to be interesting. But then I finally watched the pilot, and I was hooked within the first five minutes. This show distilled absolutely everything I loved about the character into the initial montage. Here is a Superman that actually thinks when he is trying to save that completely mandatory runaway train. Here is a Superman that is allowed to show his anger and is beautifully juxtaposed with another character that has gained powers. Yet, he must maintain humanity's trust, which requires control. And the fact that they let him smack a table without breaking it after talking about this is pure genius. Here is a Superman that listens to those around him, who makes mistakes and acknowledges them. But he also recognizes how amazing Lois is, tries to be a good dad. And the show allows Lois to be equally as important in her own way, apart from him. The show also addresses rural issues in such a way that I knew there had to be a person from a rural community on the writing staff. And I found out later that one of the exec producers is from the Midwest. The villains are interesting and strong. Side characters are given actual meaningful arcs. If the world fell into a complete shambles and we never got season two, at least we have the almost perfect season one. Ashley, thanks for submitting. If you want to be featured, you have something you love, you'd like to tell people about, send your nerd out pitch and voice memo recordings to x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions are in the show notes. Up next, the end game. Folks, we are in the end game now, and today we just have one simple question. What apocalypse do you want to live through? Where would you want to be? What would you want to do? What apocalypse, what end of the world story do you think is the most appealing to you? and that you would like to live in. Rosie, would you like to go first? You go first. You go first. I got, okay, I got I'm a couple. Go, to, I'm, I got a couple. So I'm, this is my top pick, but I have several other ones. I think that the, the New Matrix movie was a little mixed for me, but 
It would be the Matrix because of the fact that you could escape into the Matrix for a while, even if you're living in what appears to be a human utopia in one of their underground cities, you know, and that if you have the jacks in your neck, you can also hook yourself up to uh, some kind of neutered and more peaceful version of the Matrix in which you could just kind of like experience life in whatever form you would want to. So I'm going to say the Matrix with special uh, consideration for, uh, I guess, Dawn of the Dead, because I just never leave the mall. And then... <laughs> You got everything you need. You right got there. everything you need there. And then, gosh, uh, it's Mad Max Fury Road just because, like, I want to yeah. I I drive with, with Mad Max. I want to drive with Furiosa. And things seemed like they were better at the end of Mad Max Fury Road. You know, things were, things were changing for the better. So I'm going to go with those. Uh, what about you, Rosie? I love that. Yeah, I agree with you about The Matrix totally, especially, like, I, I loved Resurrections. It was definitely up and down, but I loved the romance of it. But like I did I love the aspect of the Matrix where like if you have a jack in your neck and you know what you're doing, you could just be flying. You can like yeah, reshape that's... the world in your image or in the better image for the kind of world, which is what Matrix Resurrection kind of hints at at the end. So I think that's a really cool pick. I love this question because I'm everyone always has their little like what would you do in the zombie apocalypse? Like, do you have your plan? But I would never pick the zombie apocalypse because I don't want to get eaten by a zombie. I'll probably go for like Escape from New York mm. or Escape from LA. I like both of them. <laughs> <laughs> Escape from LA, you can do some surfing, you know, but... Um, you play a little basketball. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I think I'm a big sucker for like the 80s, like ragtag gangs of survivors and you get to wear a cool yeah. like ripped off denim jacket and be like souping up a car or maybe you're just like part of the rebellion and you're doing something really cool i love that kind of aesthetic i think last time we played this with dystopias i picked akira so i will also give a special shout out to akira because i want to ride a light cycle so yeah i mean i think the funnest thing about this is we can imagine a better version of an apocalypse rather than the one we're living through <laughs> so like i would go the other one as well is nausicaa because I want to live in a Hayao Miyazaki world and I want to yeah, have a that cool would be... mask and a cool flying machine. And maybe... Now, see, that's that's what my Matrix, if we were in the Matrix post-apocalyptic world and I had uh, access to, a, you know, a computer simulation program and I had the jack in my neck, I would make like a Miyazaki world inside oh, the computer where, I that, that I lived in. That's a that genius li- idea. You'd never yeah. need to leave. Fuck I the would real never world. leave. Just that's be- it. <laughs> Um, that's it for the end game. Let us know who you think won and who you would pick or what uh, apocalyptic fiction you would pick to live in and tweet it at us or post it at us with hashtag XRV Endgame to give us your pick. That was really fun, Rosie. Big thank you to Rosie Knight, to Jason and H from the Dune Pod for joining us on X-Ray Vision. If you want to learn more about the things we explore each episode, check out our listener guide to all things X-Ray Vision in the show notes or on our website. Catch the next episode on January 21st. And again, send your nerd out submissions to X-Ray at Crooked.com. Quick reminder that The Eternals is now out on Disney Plus. I watched it. I did watch it last night. I watched it last night. <laughs> I watched it straight away. I rewatched it and then I watched the very end post credits a couple of times just to really 
just to really soak it in. So go check that out and listen to our episode about the film. Don't forget to rate and review us five stars only, please. We crave those five-star ratings. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by myself, Chris Lord, and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by me, Jason Concepcion, and Sandy Gerard. Caroline Reston and Carlton Gillespie are our consulting producers, and our editing and sound design is by the great Facilis Fotopoulos. Thank you to Brian Vasquez for our theme music. See you next time. I was bruised and battered. I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. Saw my reflection in the window of the back to tank. I didn't know my own face. Oh, brother, you're going to leave me wasting away on the streets of In the 1970s, a young group of violent revolutionaries joined forces to create the Weather Underground Organization, a group of radicals who brawled with police officers and bombed the Pentagon, all in the name of ending racism. Hi, I'm Zaid Ayers-Dorn, host of Crooked Media's new podcast, Mother Country Radicals which dives into the true story of how my parents and their friends went from peace-loving activists to topping the FBI's most wanted list. New episodes of Mother Country Radicals are out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it, between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.